If you are new to Grace Community Church, we are in the middle of a few weeks into a new study as a local church in the book of Colossians. And I want us to dive right in this morning to Colossians chapter 1. And before we do that, we're going to bow the knee. We're going to ask God to bless His Word today, to make it effective in our life. So let's pray. Lord, we come to You and we worship You today. You are not dead, Lord. You're alive. Lord, You reign. You are the one true and living God. And You are our Father through the Gospel, through the work of Christ. And we come to You today, Lord. We want to worship You. God, we want to magnify Your work in our life. And so we ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes today. God, let us increase in the knowledge of God. Lord, let, let light break into our understanding of who You are today. God, drive out false thoughts about You or distorted thoughts about You today, God, as we walk through Your Word. God, who is a God like You? You are the one who works for those who wait for You. God, we do that today. Come work as we wait. God, come move upon Your Word. God, You say in Your Word that You revive the heart of the contrite. Lord, let us inherit that promise today from You. And You speak about a faint spirit being given a garment of praise. God, let us inherit these promises. Restore to us the joy of Your salvation. God, move upon Your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, I want us to start out our time today, and I want us to zero in on a truth, a truth claim or a true statement. And that true statement is this, Christians need the gospel. Christians need the gospel. Another way to say that is that the gospel is for the believer. The gospel is for the believer. So I want us, I want us to push into that. For several minutes this morning, and I want us to use that true statement as a framework or even a lens and carry this true statement into our passage this morning into Colossians 1. The gospel is for the believer. Now, if you are new to Grace Community Church in the past several months, you may have never heard this, okay? Let's talk about these things. But I'm telling you, we beat this drum as this church was planted. We beat this drum until we almost passed out. That the gospel is for the Christian. So let's talk about that for a minute. That's, a, that's an important detail for us to grab a hold of. Because we live in a culture that primarily thinks about the gospel being a message for the lost world. Okay? It's, it's what Christians talk about in order for non-Christians to become believers. Now, it is certainly that. It is not less than that, but it is not only that. The gospel is not only the message by which you become a Christian. The gospel is the announcement of all the glorious things that are ours in Jesus Christ as believers. It is the good news for Christians. So I want you to just meditate on this thought. Christians need the gospel. And that shouldn't surprise you because Christians need Christ. You need Christ just as much today 
in the Christian life as you did the very first moment that you became a believer? Why do you need Jesus just as much? And the answer to that question is because you still sin. You are still a sinner in need of grace. Therefore, every Christian has a perpetual need of the gospel. And so the way that we respond to these things, once we throw that out there, that the gospel is for believers, then when we turn the corner, we see that we need to, as believers, as the church of Jesus, and that's mainly who this message is for this morning. As we see these truths, we as believers, we need to be meditating on and feasting on the finished work of Christ in our life. We need it just as much today as we did the day we became Christians. Daily, every single day, brothers and sisters, we are supposed to be relating to God on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Listen to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. I'll remind you who you are and what's happened to you. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand. So I want you to get that picture. You became a Christian by grace. And after you become a Christian, you have peace with God. It is an objective truth in your life. It never goes away. Peace has been obtained with God. And, and wherever you walk around on planet earth every single day, that verse just said, Believer, brother and sister, you stand in grace. That is your state before God. You got saved by grace. You stand in grace. Therefore, you need to be living by the grace of God daily, moment by moment, as we live life in this world. That's what makes the Christian life distinctly Christian. Because it's about Jesus. It's us remembering the finished work of Christ and appropriating this finished work daily as we walk through this world. So I told you last week, Maybe the week before. I told you that my highest aim as a shepherd in this church and as a pastor in your life, my highest aim, the thing that I want for you more than I want anything else is for you to be happy in Christ. And I mean that with sincerity. I long for that in your life. I long for that in mine. I want you happy in Jesus. I want you satisfied in Christ. I don't want you walking through this world kicking religious cans down the road and going through Christian motions without the joy of Jesus Christ exploding through your soul. I long for that for you. I want you happy in the gospel, happy in what your Savior has done for you. And if that's ever going to happen in your life, you need to understand the importance of what we're talking about. The gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for Christians. What produces that joy? And I'm submitting to you, it's the gospel. It's you feasting on, as a believer, the finished work of Christ. The same message that saves you, sustains you in this world. The gospel is for the Christian. 
So I want you to think about it like this. What I'm talking about right now, being happy in Jesus and being satisfied in the gospel, this is not icing on the cake of the Christian life. Okay? I don't want you to think about it like that. I don't want you to think about that's something that I need to grow into. I want you to think about it as something foundational that you cannot move forward without. You cannot ignore this. There is no path forward for you apart from joy in Jesus. Do you catch that? It's not icing on the cake. It's the only way forward. There is no progress for you apart from joy in Christ. Joy in Christ. So I want you to say this. Only the gospel. You say it. Only the gospel. One more time. Only the gospel gives us as believers the proper motivations and the proper mindsets to obey God and to live the Christian life. I just want to give you a couple of bullet points here. Okay? Brothers and sisters, it is only, it is only through the gospel, only through the gospel, that you are reminded that Jesus has performed a finished work on your behalf. And that absolutely transforms forever the way that you approach the commandments and the Christian life from that point forward. We are the only people on planet earth. The only people on planet earth that obey God from righteousness. He finished a work on our behalf. Everybody else is trying to merit righteousness and earn righteousness through their obedience to God. Not us. Why? Because the gospel announces to us that our righteousness is Jesus Christ. We are righteous in Him before we ever come to obeying God. Only through the gospel are you set free from works righteousness forever. It is the only thing in all the universe that can do that. Only through the gospel. Consider this. It is only through the gospel... That joy in salvation in Christ Jesus sets you free from joyless drudgery and slavish obedience to the commands of God. What fills us with joyful obedience to God's commandments? Only the gospel. Only the gospel reminds us of the mighty work that God has done for us and that we were deserving of none of it. None of it. And as we receive this glorious gospel, we approach God's commandments with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy of our salvation. Question, brothers and sisters, do you struggle like me? You ever struggle with joyless obedience? You ever struggle with that? You ever find yourself less than happy in obeying God and knowing what you should do, but less joyful than you should be? You ever find yourself in that place? Then guess what the remedy is? The same remedy for you? Same remedy for me. It's the gospel. It's only through the gospel that the joy of our salvation is restored. Is restored. It's the proper motives, the proper mindsets for obeying God. One more here. It is only through the gospel, brothers and sisters, that we have the power to kill sin and make advancements in the Christian life and walk in righteousness. Why? Because it's only through the gospel that we hear that good news that though we are sinful to the core, we have been united to the resurrected Lord of the universe. 
Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where do we get that apart from the gospel? And the answer is nowhere. Do you ever find yourself in that place? You feel unbelief sneaking in to your life that I can't ever be any different. I will never rid myself of this sin. I will never walk in these righteous paths. And that gospel breaks in and reminds us that we are joined to the resurrected King of the universe. And we are given power over sin because of Christ. Only the gospel does these things. Only the gospel. And the reason we need to know that is because we are very prone to forget the gospel. Okay? And I don't mean on paper. Don't listen to me for a second. I don't mean that I slide you a piece of paper... And I say, how are you justified before God? And you say, well, I do good things and I'm justified before God. I don't mean that you forget the gospel on paper. I mean that we are very prone to forget the gospel in our practical daily life. And how we live before God. And here's how this comes out. We are so prone to default back. To relating to God on the basis of our performance. Instead of on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So prone to that. Therefore, we have to drive that wedge in there. And we have to preach ourselves happy in Jesus. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because of how prone we are to, de to default to relating to God. On the basis of our performance. Now I'll give you two ways to think about that. That hits every one of us in this room. Good days and bad days. You have temptations. Your good days. The way that that works out in my life and in yours. Is that when things are going good. When we are obeying God. When we are the pattern of our life is keeping God's commandments. Here's what we're prone to do. Sinful, arrogant self-righteousness. That focuses in on our obedience and what we are doing or performing and takes the focus off of the finished work of Jesus Christ. On good days, we're, pr we're prone to self-righteousness. And then on bad days, when we fail the God that we love, when we break His commandments, we are prone to a sinful, unbelieving condemnation. That takes the focus off of Jesus and His finished work on our behalf. And all we can think about is our failures. Both of those are expressions of being focused in on our, our performance or lack thereof. Instead of being zoned in on Jesus Christ and His finished work. You need the gospel every single day. Good days, bad days. Every single day you need to be reminded that your righteousness is in heaven. And that God has performed a finished work on your behalf in Christ Jesus. Listen to this quote from Jerry Bridges. This is a good one. He says, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And then he says, And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. The moment that we begin to relate to God on the basis of our performance is the moment that we assault the finished work of Christ. 
good days or bad days. We need the gospel. And so brothers and sisters, preach the gospel to the nations. Preach it to this lost world. Fill this city up with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But listen to me. Preach the gospel to yourself. You need to be happy in Christ. You need to remind yourself of what God has done for you in Jesus. In Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise any of us. Okay? With this truth hanging over us. The gospel is for Christians. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel to Christians in Rome. To the saints. Not to the lost in Rome, to the church in Rome. He's watering at the mouth. I want to announce to you the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to build you up in the gospel. I am eager to do this. Because I know it's powerful in your life. And this is how we see Him start. So many of these letters, we talked about this, is the pattern of the way that Paul writes these letters is before he tells Christians what to do, he reminds Christians what has been done in Christ. That's what makes our obedience different than every type of obedience in this world. Christ has performed a finished work on our behalf. On our behalf. That's the grid that I want to take us into our text this morning. That's exactly what's happening again in, in these New Testament letters. Is he is calling believers... To remember the gospel. So let's read it together. In Colossians chapter 1. Verse 5. Through 8. Starting in the middle of verse 5. Where we left off last week. He says. Of this you have heard before. In the word of the truth. The gospel. Which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us. Your love in the Spirit. main point of our passage today is that Paul is reminding the Colossian Christians that they have received the true gospel. Therefore, the main point of this sermon today is me reminding Grace Community Church that you have received the true gospel. God intends for our face to be lifted to the heavens and us encouraged and us remembering that the true gospel and not a false counterfeit is what we have grabbed a hold of and what we have believed. So I want you to see this. He's, all the focus in these verses today is on the gospel. And the first thing he focuses on is the reception of the gospel in Colossae. And you see this in three verbs. One in verse 5 and the, and the rest in verse 6. And the three verbs are this. They heard the gospel. Look at verse 6. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. Verse 7. They learned the gospel. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. And they learned the gospel. 
Now I want you to think about this. We're going to think about Colossians for a minute. Why in the world would he remind this church that they had heard, understood, and learned the gospel? Why do you have to remind a Christian that they have the gospel? Okay? And I want you to slip back on what we've talked about already. And then slip forward into Colossians. The background that's happening in this church is that there are false teachers that are influencing these Christians. Okay? And almost certainly, they are trying to undercut Epaphras' gospel. Epaphras was the church planner. He's the one that preached the gospel to, in Colossae. They received his gospel. And you have some people influencing this church that are trying to undercut that message. Now, I don't believe that the most likely way that they're doing that is saying, Epaphras is crazy. He's off his rocker. This is the true gospel. Okay? If it was like that, I think Colossians would have a tone more like the book of Galatians and curses would be pronounced and anathemas. But it's not like that. It's a softer tone. And so I think the way that Epaphras' gospel is being undermined in Colossae is they're trying to add to his message. Saying, yeah, 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 that's true. What Epaphras said is true. But that's like elementary school and we want you to come to the university. You get what I'm saying? That Epaphras' gospel was true, but he didn't tell you in everything. There's some more things that you need to know. So you think about like this. If Epaphras baked the cake, they wanted icing on the cake, right? It was an incomplete thing that these false teachers wanted to complete. This is the attack on Epaphras' gospel. And so what he's doing here is he's calling their attention back to the very beginning... That that gospel that they received from Epaphras on the very first day was the true gospel. They're not missing anything. They don't, they're not in need of anything. The power of God for salvation is the gospel that they believed from the very beginning. This is the reception of the gospel. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about... Where, the, where, the, where the, the light broke in your soul and you began to understand the gospel. This is the same encouragement to you today. That you have grabbed a hold of the real thing. That you have the real, authentic, Christian gospel. And so he takes this idea that you receive the true gospel and he begins to press that in by walking through several characteristics of this gospel. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about these characteristics. Okay? And the first one that he pushes into, as he's reminding them of the message that they received, is he calls the gospel by name in verse 5, and he calls it the word of the truth. The word of the truth. So you think about how, that, how important that is. That what we have grabbed a hold of and staked our soul on in eternity it's not just true, it is the truth. It is the ultimate truth in all the universe. It is the matter of first importance. It is the truth. As opposed to every other religious system in this world is invented and springs from the mind of a man, but the gospel came to us from God. I was talking to somebody about this not even a week ago about... 
The doctrine of Scripture is not one religious idea, one religious book next to another religious book. That is not the Christian Scriptures. Okay, Our, our God has spoken to us. It is the doctrine of revelation. That means in a world walking through the fog of human opinion, God speaks an authoritative word and He reveals Himself. The gospel is God's revelation of truth as opposed to human speculation and false religions all over this world. And so every worldview has one of two foundations. You operate under human speculation or divine revelation. And the gospel that we believe came from God. It is true and reliable information about God and His purposes for this world. It is the only truth about the salvation of God that is available to humanity. The gospel is true and therefore it is reliable. It's reliable. It's not a religious philosophy. It is a real act in human history. And you have to fight to believe that. Okay, We're not talking about fairy tale kid stories when we talk about the historical work of Jesus Christ, when we talk about His crucifixion and His glorious resurrection, these are rooted in real history. Okay, God promised what He would do in Jesus Christ centuries before this happened. It's not like it popped up out of nowhere. You have some, some a thousand year old prophecies about the Christ to come. Some several centuries year old prophecies about the Christ to come. So for millennia and for centuries, God had been announcing the salvation to come in Jesus. The salvation to come in Christ. And then all of a sudden what happens? He makes good on His Word. God said He would do it and then He did it. There are verifiable prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. When's the last time you were encouraged by that? That we're not grabbing a hold of a hope so. Okay? This is a real act in human history. And it makes it objective universal truth. That Christ died for us. And that He was raised from the dead on the third day for our justification. It is the truth. It is the truth. And that means that the gospel as we announce it to this world. It's not this sentimental emotional appeal. Uh, please be saved. Please believe these things. Please just be saved. It's so wonderful to be saved. We preach the truth. We, we preach and we, and, we, and we plead with people, believe reality. Believe the truth. Christ died for sins and He was raised on the third day. And if you haven't considered these things, I beg you to go and search out these prophecies. Our God announced the end from the beginning. End from the beginning. This has always been the plan for human history. It is the truth. It is the truth. The next thing we see in verse 5 is that the gospel communicates hope stored up in heaven. We talked about this a little bit last week. So that hope stored up in heaven, we heard about that through the gospel that was preached to us. Okay? Hope stored up in heaven. The objects that Christians hope for are in heaven. They're in eternity. And these promises are specifically communicated to us through the gospel. I just want to draw your attention just to one thing with that. That the gospel is, is a message of eternal hope. 
not mainly a message for transforming culture and, and changing human societies and social justice and resetting human justice structures. Okay? The gospel is not mainly a message about rearranging this world. The gospel is mainly a message about eternal life in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. It is an announcement of hope forever and eternity. Now, why is that important? Several reasons. Social gospel gets this completely backwards. That the application of the gospel of Jesus is mainly about rearranging things in this world. But you think about that. Think about what we know about our state. And think about how much better news we need than a social justice. We are going to die. Every single one of us. So you imagine living in, in the most perfect human society that you can ever imagine living in. And then, boom, you die. And Hebrews 9 tells us exactly what happens. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Judgment. And that automatically means that we need some better news than rearranging the furniture in this world. Because 70, 80 years, this vapor of a life, gone and then eternity and forever comes. If we stand before God as sinners dying in our sins, Ryan called our attention to this moments ago, we experience eternal punishment and eternal wrath from God, the just judge. We need some better news than rearranging the furniture in the here and now. We need a word of eternal hope. A word of eternal hope. We need to be saved from eternal wrath. And this is exactly what God has provided for us through the gospel. And I'm going to summarize that in, in this phrase that we see in verse 6. There's a name given to the gospel. And it's called the grace of God. Verse 6. You understood the grace of God. That is a synonym for the gospel. The grace of God. God's blessing towards those who deserve God's judgment. Many times you'll hear grace defined something like this. God's blessing to the undeserving. And I was thinking about this as we were taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Is That's the soft way to think about grace. That God gave us something that we didn't deserve. Because really and truly, we, we, there's no neutral state about us. God gave us something... <laughs> When we were ill-deserving. It's not that God gave us eternal life when we didn't deserve eternal life. He gave us eternal life when we deserved eternal wrath and eternal judgment. And so when Ryan read that verse in Revelation about the smoke of their torment going up forever. I had this picture in my mind as he read that. That it would be perfectly just for the angels of heaven. To sit around and watch me burning in eternity. And say... Pour out your justice on Him, Lord. Give Him what He deserves. Perfectly just for every single one of us in this room. And it is, and it is in that place that instead of that eternal wrath, God pours out His glorious grace toward us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Listen to, to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared... Bringing salvation for all people. 
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God in that verse is basically used as a name for Jesus Christ. And you just note this as a lesson to, to take with you throughout this world. You are not allowed to be biblical and talk about God's grace apart from Jesus. The grace of God that brings salvation to all people is the work of God in Jesus Christ. It is not God's benevolent disposition towards all of His creation. It is the mighty work that God has done in Jesus. In Jesus. Ill-deserving. So I want you to get that picture. Dark, hopeless, sin-soaked, cursed world. Filled, not with good people like you and me, but with rebellious enemies of God that have done nothing but sin and rebel against God's authority our entire life. And what does God do? We sang that song earlier, that in the middle of that hopeless place, instead of pouring out eternal wrath on us, God does this. The matchless King of all paid the blood price for us. That's the grace of God. What more could God have done in your life than slaughter His Son in your place to win your salvation? This is God's grace towards the undeserving. The undeserving. Look at verse 6. Becoming a Christian in verse 6 is described as understanding God's grace in truth. Understanding the grace of God in truth. And what that means for you here today is that if you understand grace, you understand the gospel. And if you do not understand grace, you do not understand the gospel. You haven't seen it rightly. Because to understand grace is to understand the work of Christ. It is at the very center of becoming a Christian. And to understand it rightly means that it's the exact opposite of human achievement. We talked about this at the beginning, that default towards performance and that default towards works righteousness. The grace of God is the exact opposite of that. It is this Christ plus mentality that yes, Jesus did this glorious work for me, but I need to add a few things to it. And this is what they were teaching in Colossae. Look at chapter 2 verse 8. It's Christ plus philosophy. Yeah, Jesus did that work, but you also need this additional knowledge. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. It's Christ plus Jewish ceremony. Yet yeah, Jesus did that work, but you need to keep these feast days and these dietary laws. You need to ice that cake. It's not really a finished work. He just got things started. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. Don't taste, don't touch, don't eat. It's Christ plus these human, this human religious code that, yeah, Jesus got things started, but you need to finish this off with don't taste, don't touch, don't eat. But the person who really understands grace understands this. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing. You remember who we were. We were the hostile ones, the enemies of God that deserve God's wrath. We don't have anything good to give God. We don't have anything good to slide beside the finished work of Christ. And so you have to settle this in your soul and, and, and in your own quiet conversations with yourself. Either Jesus paid it all or He paid some of it. Either He finished a work on His cross or He got something started for you. 
And we know in His dying breath, we know what He said. He did not, when He gives up His Spirit, Jesus did not say, It has begun. Finish it yourself. He said what? This is gospel to you. This is encouragement from heaven that your Savior, as He's giving His life on the cross, He screams, It is finished. It is finished. He finished the work for us. This is the grace of God. Did He pay it all or did He pay some of it? Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise to His name. Do you catch that? Do you see what we just read? The Son of God hammered to a bloody cross, dying in your place. Your sins hammered to the cross in the body of Jesus. And He dies as the substitute, bearing the full wrath of God. And so you think for yourself, what in the world could you possibly smuggle up next to, next to this finished glorious work of this bloody Christ dying in your place? What are you going to add to that? Your sins hammered to the cross in the body of Jesus. And the answer to that all over the room is I can add absolutely nothing. That is the grace of God. The grace of God. It is a gift received. It is not something in any way that we can earn or merit. Every time we default to those mindsets, we're defaulting to false gospels, false religious systems. I'm going to read a few verses in the book of Romans to drive this in. Grace and merit, they are, they are diametrically opposed to each other. This verse will change your life. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who works, he gets what he deserves. To the one who does not work, but believes and looks to Jesus Christ, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is the grace of God. That is how the sovereign God of the universe has chosen to save sinners. He gets all the glory and we get nothing. We attribute nothing. I even saw this this week on somebody's timeline. Heard this quote before. The only thing that you attributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. This is the grace of God. You cannot understand the gospel. Therefore, you cannot be a Christian without understanding grace diametrically opposed to works, to the one who does not work. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. End of the law. End of law keeping for a righteous standing before God. Christ is the end of it. Romans chapter 11 verse 6. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. They can't even mix a little. This is oil and water. It's either grace or it's human effort. Human works. Either He paid some of it on the cross and you finish it. Or He paid it all and we are recipients of God's grace. His intervention to save sinners. This is the grace of God. Now you think about these Colossian Christians that are being assaulted with these different layers of false teaching. And He's hammering this down at the very beginning. You understood the grace of God. You understood that Jesus finished the work for you. You understood that. You received that gospel and you knew that you had a right standing before God. Therefore, you know, deep down you know, you don't need anything else. You have a crucified and resurrected Christ and you have righteousness in heaven in the Lord Jesus. You receive the grace of God and you don't need anything else. And neither do we. If we believe that same gospel, we receive the grace of God as God's gift of salvation to sinners. Look at verse 6. Still with this theme of the gospel, of us knowing that the characteristics of this message we, we received. In verse 6, he calls their attention to, I'm going to call this the presence of the gospel. It came to this little small town of Colossae, but it also came to the whole world. It is a message that has come to the whole world. So he does two things. He shows this little group of Christians in this insignificant city. He calls their attention to the history of missions. You could say it like that. And he reminds them of the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire. And he reminds them that it's going everywhere. This thing is getting out there. And then he pivots in the same statement. And he says that same message that's spreading everywhere, that's the same message that came to you. You are not in need of, of, of being something finished off. You have received authentic Christianity. The authentic Christian gospel. It's not just a local Colossian thing. It's the message that's spreading across the world. It's good news for all nations. I'm going to give you a quote from a, several church historians. This guy's name is Herbert Cain. And he writes this. What began... As a Jewish sect in A.D. 30 had grown into a world religion by A.D. 60, 30 years, the gospel exploded on the scene. And it is like an infectious disease working its way through the whole world and all nations. It's always been like that. One of the attributes of that gospel that you have received, its very nature is to spread out and go forward. This is the spread or the advance of the gospel. You see this several times in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 6 verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12 verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 19 verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase 
and prevail mightily. Mightily. When's the last time you meditated on that? It's in the very nature of this message about Jesus to spread out into all nations. Listen to another quote. Church historian Roland Allen says, In a little more than ten years, the Apostle Paul established the church in four provinces of the Roman Empire. Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before A.D. 45, there were no churches in these provinces. But ten years later, the Apostle Paul could speak as if his work were finished in these areas. And you see that in, in Romans chapter 15. He says, I finished the work. There's no longer anything for me to do here. I need to go to Spain. Ten years. Ten years that happened. And the church is established in four provinces. And when you read that rightly, that's not as much exalting the Apostle Paul as his gospel. That's what it does. That's what it's always done. It increases. It multiplies. Ten years. Four regions. But the gospel didn't stop with the apostles. Church history tells us that by the year 350 A.D., there was a Christian church in every major city in the Roman Empire. And some estimate that by this time there were 37 million Christians in, in the Roman Empire. That's over 50% of the population. I want you to wrap your mind around that. That that message is powerful and it explodes on the scene. Spreads into all the nations. In just a few hundred years, what started, or what was called a Jewish sect... In just a few hundred years, it becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. How does that happen? How does that happen? We're talking about emperors bowing the knee to King Jesus. Only 200 years after this gospel has been unleashed on the planet. How does that happen? Because it's always been the nature of the gospel to go forward, to multiply, to spread into all the world. And listen, is that not an encouraging thing to you? That that same infectious, forward-moving, missionary gospel is the same exact gospel that came to you and transformed your life. It's not a different message. That same gospel in Acts 17 that the apostles were walking around and they said, these men turn the world upside down because they're preaching Jesus Christ as the true King. That same message that turned the world upside down is the same gospel that saved you. The exact same one. Not some cheap counterfeit. Not some substitute. The real power of God unto salvation. This is an encouragement to them. It's an encouragement to us. I want to zone in on one more thing as we close. This will take a minute. The last characteristic that he pushes into is what I'm calling the gospel's power. And I'm seeing that in verse 6 where he says, not only has the gospel come to the whole world, he says this, it's bearing fruit and increasing. It's bearing fruit and increasing. And what he's reminding us of there 
is when we're talking about this thing spreading out and advancing in 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 an aggressive advance, He reminds us with those words that the gospel is not present in the whole world empty-handed. It's present in power. It is a power that God has unleashed among the nations. It is the power of God. When's the last time that you considered that? The gospel that you believe is a power unleashed in this world. Listen to Romans chapter 1 verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone who believes, present tense, literally every single one of you who are believing right now, the gospel is the power of God to salvation in your life. It is a power from God unleashed in your life. If you're believing in this millisecond, if your trust is in Jesus in this millisecond, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Not only is it true, not only is it the grace of God, but it is power from on high, unleashed in this world, and unleashed in your life. It shows this power in two ways in our text. It both bears fruit and increases. It bears fruit and it increases. It bears fruit. And that means that it, produce some, it produces something within us. That's fruits of righteousness. Christ-like character. The fruits of the Holy Spirit. When we receive the gospel. When we believe the gospel. It begins to exert its power on us. And we begin to bear the image of Jesus Christ. Every single Christian. The gospel bears fruit, but it also increases. So you have this internal growth of the gospel, but it also increases. And that's a reference to Christian conversions. It grows Christians in in Christ-like character, but it also grows converts among the nations. It has internal power and external power in this world. It bears fruit and... It increases. And you can see both of those. In Acts chapter 9 verse 31. The church is said to be built up. That's internal growth. We're being made like Jesus. We're making advancements in godliness. And that same church is said to be multiplied. That means that souls are being added. And the Lord is growing that church in number. This is what the gospel does. Both of those things. Bears fruit. Makes us like Jesus. And makes converts. It spreads out and makes conversions among the nations. This is the power of the gospel. It bears fruit and it increases. These two words, bears fruit and increases, those two words call our attention back to the very beginning of the Bible. This is something that I stumbled across in studying this passage that I've never seen this before. Bears fruit and increases calling our attention back to the very first chapter of Scripture. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. So I want you to see some parallels in our passage 
with this passage in Genesis 1. The gospel bears fruit and increases. And God commanded the first Adam in the old creation. And some people call this the mandate. God commanded the first Adam to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And a good way for you to understand that mandate and that commandment is that the first Adam was charged to fill the earth with the image of God. There's a reason why directly before this mandate in verse 28, we are told that man and woman are created in the image of God. There's a reason why the very next time in Scripture this mandate is mentioned in Genesis chapter 9, it is after all the wicked on planet earth are killed in the flood and Noah and his children are said to be in the image of God and those image bearers are given this commandment to be fruitful and multiply. What I want you to understand there is that God's plan for humanity and for planet earth is He has a plan to fill planet earth with image bearers that bear His likeness, that bear His image. And so if you spend any time in Scripture, you know that Adam failed this mission. Adam was not fruitful, multiply, and filled the earth with the image of God. And if God, all He wanted was human bodies in that mandate, then why did God kill everybody on planet earth besides eight people in the flood of Noah? God's intention is to fill planet earth with His moral likeness, with His image. He wants this earth and, and, and this globe full of image bearers that praise His holy name. This is God's design for humanity. It's His design for the world. Adam failed this mission. And so what do you think happens? What, what, what we know about the God of Scripture is that He's sovereign. And so, do you think that after Adam fails this mission, God says, well, you know what? I had a plan for humanity. I had a plan for planet Earth, but Adam wrecked everything, and I guess I can't have what I want. Is that what we think happened? And the answer is absolutely not. Nothing can stop His purposes. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And we know that God's purposes for humanity... And for this creation are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the Bible teaches us that where this last, first Adam failed, this last Adam, the Lord Jesus, he enters into the human race incarnated in a human body. And he does everything the first Adam failed to do. And what that means for us this morning is we remember Jesus will not fail that mandate. Jesus will be fruitful. Jesus will multiply. And Jesus will fill the earth. With the image of God. And our passage today tells us that the instrument that King Jesus, as He exerts dominion over this creation, the instrument that He's going to use to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is this glorious, powerful gospel. This announcement about what He's done for every single person that trusts Him. He will be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the image of God. And what that means is that when every person, when every person who believes this gospel, they get transformed, they get recreated in the image of God. And as this gospel goes through all nations, that image begins to spread in all the world, among all nations. And so I want to take those glorious, that, that theological frame, we're talking about the purposes of, for creation. And, and that's what he's drawing our attention to here. 
in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing. And then you have this huge exalted thought in the whole world is doing these things. And then it says, just as it does among you. Now you have this powerful universal force unleashing its authority and its power in all of creation. And he turns to every Christian and he says, that's the same power that God has unleashed in your life. Not second best, not a counterfeit, the power of God unto salvation. And it gets even better than that. Look in verse 6. Not only is that same power unleashed in you, verse 6 tells us that that power went to work in you since the very first day you heard and understood the grace of God. It has been at work in you from the very beginning. Is that not an encouraging thing? That the moment that you received it, it was a power unleashed in your life. Exerting its influence. Making you more like Christ. The image of God being renewed. Colossians chapter 1 verse 11. This is the power of God that has been unleashed in every Christian. Is that not a glorious thought to wake up to every day? That the same power that's transforming this entire universe is at work in me. And I say this to myself often, and you can take this. I, when I'm preaching to myself and I'm not thinking rightly, I tell myself, wake up and smell the new covenant. Look at the glory of what Christ has done in your life. Wake up to the beauty of it. Of this glorious work of conversion. And this is exactly what this passage is calling us to do. As we remember this gospel that has come to us. The power of God has been unleashed in the life of every Christian. When's the last time you thought about that? That God is at work in you. And He's been at work in you from the very first day you heard and believed. The very first day. Our application of this passage today is very simple. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember the glorious work that Jesus has done in your life. And I'll say this. I said this at the, at the beginning. If this is an issue for you, if you find yourself not satisfied in Christ and, and battling for joy in Christ, just, just resolve this, to do this. That... That you remember this. There's no going forward until this is dealt with. There's no going forward. You don't need to go to work tomorrow. You need to be like Jacob that lays a hold of God. And you wrestle God until you receive that blessing from God. I cannot go forward unless I'm seeing Jesus Christ right now. That's how much urgency you need to hear this this morning. Remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. And I'll say this, sometimes I'm a little concerned about the way that we say we need to be a doer of the word, brother, and a doer of the word, sister. And I amen that. That's in Scripture. We need to respond to what God's word has for us. But you know, and this might be a good reminder to some really pragmatic, practical brothers and sisters in the room. Do you know that we don't respond to every passage of Scripture the same? 
If you find yourself automatically running to a five-point plan and something pragmatic to something that you can do every day in a horizontal sense, you need to back up. We don't respond to every passage of Scripture horizontally. Sometimes the way that we become a doer of the Word is vertical. We remember the Gospel. We remember the Gospel. We worship our God. We get ourselves happy in the Lord Jesus. Happy in Christ. Satisfied in our Savior. So if that's what we mean by being a doer of the Word, I say, Amen. Let's remember the Gospel. There's a reason why these letters are weighted so heavy of these Gospel reminders on the front end. You see this in Ephesians, Romans, you see it again in Colossians. We need to be reminded of what God has done for us in Jesus. And if you ignore stuff like that, and you hear what I'm saying, and you're like, yeah, I'm not really satisfied in Christ. Yeah, I'm not really joyful in Christ, but I'm going to kick that can down the road. I'm going to keep reading my Bible, keep coming to church. I'm not going to pay much attention to my affections and my joy in Jesus. I promise you this, you will not last very long. You will not go very far, and you will not last very long if all you have is duty and no delight in Jesus Christ. If all you do is strive for Christ and you are never satisfied in Jesus, you will not last very long. You need this. You need this glorious gospel. You need these vivid reminders every day of what God has done for you. So get satisfied in Christ. Call on the Lord until He answers you. And so my reminder for you as a local church of Jesus Christ this morning is you have the real gospel. The same gospel that, that spread among all the nation, transformed this world, turned it upside down. That same power is at work in you. You are not a second class citizen of the kingdom of God. And I will say to every member of this local church, you are not a second class member of this local church. You have the gospel. You have the same righteous standing as the apostle Peter. You have the gospel. The real, authentic Christian gospel. You don't have any less than anybody else. It's extremely important that you know that. That you are not wide open to deception. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in our close. He says, a man or a woman basking in the gospel is a man or a woman at their highest moment. Think about that. Gospel is not something you need just when you mess up. Be happy in Jesus when you mess up. And then you go on to your highest moments when you do right. No, 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 no. Your highest moments and the chief end of your entire existence is when you bask in the grace of God as revealed to you in Jesus Christ. You are at your highest and best when you are happy in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that the reason that you exist is you are unto the praise of the glory of God's grace. When you're happy in Jesus Christ, you are fulfilling your eternal purpose. Let's pray. Father, we ask You that You would move on Your Word, God, in our life. God, I pray for names and faces and brothers and sisters that battle discouragement. God, I pray that you would blast it away with the finished work of Christ. God, I pray that you would make us a happy people in our God.
God, satisfy us with your steadfast love. That we would rejoice and be glad in you all our days. Be magnified in this body, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.